What is the fastest growing scam attack vector? We already talked about financial grooming, also known as pig butchering or crypto investment scam on scam rangers. Typically, these scams start in two ways. One is the friendly wrong number message. It could be on WhatsApp or SMS. Someone randomly reaches out and tries to say something like, you are in my contacts, who is this? Or I'm trying to talk to David. This is not David, wrong number. And then in both cases, start a conversation that is carefully designed to form a friendly relationship that can last up to a few weeks. And then the conversation about crypto investment starts. The second way that has recently emerged is the crypto training. It's now a disguise of training. And what they do is they start creating these chat groups on WhatsApp or Telegram or Skype or other communication channels. And they create this whole fake environment that shows that many people are interested in the signals and the information that is shared by the leader of this group. I have an example of that on my LinkedIn. It's featured, so you can go check the messages there. The 2022 FBI Internet Crime Complaint Center report shows a sharp rise in the total reported losses from scams, and a significant part of that growth is due to the sharp rise of crypto investment scams, which has grown 183% year over year. In episode two of Scam Rangers, we talked to Aaron West a prosecutor from Santa Clara County, California, about crypto investment scams, and she explained the tools and processes that law enforcement teams can use to help victims, such as tracing money on the blockchain and taking legal action to seize money. Today, six months later, I wanted to check in with Erin and another colleague of hers, Alona Katz, to talk about progress. My big takeaway from this conversation, this is a big, hairy problem. We all need to be creative and scrappy and work together to solve it. Because at least for now, no one is coming to take charge. It's all on us. Together, we need to step up. Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayelet Bigger-Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. Welcome to Scam Rangers. I have two amazing superhero Scam Rangers with me today. First, Alona Katz has been a prosecutor at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office for over a decade. She currently serves as Deputy Bureau Chief of Cybercrime and Identity Theft. Prior to becoming a prosecutor, Alona worked as an investigator for New York City and State. She has investigated and prosecuted numerous cases related to cryptocurrency, money laundering, credit card bust-out schemes, and the use of synthetic identities. The next guest, Aaron West, has already been on Scam Rangers. Aaron has a passion for assisting victims and has spent 24 years as a deputy district attorney in Santa Clara County, California. She is a nationally recognized expert and frequent speaker about the investigation and prosecution of cryptocurrency crimes. Aaron currently focuses on educating state and local law enforcement about how to investigate pig butchering cases, and how to seize cryptocurrency from international bet actors. Welcome to the podcast, Erin and Alona. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> it's really nice to be back. I'm excited to catch up and see how things evolved over the last six months. So 
everyone, if you haven't listened to episode two of Scam Rangers, go listen quickly and come back. But we'll recap a little bit and talk about what we previously talked about and then see how things have changed over the last six months. So we previously talked about the emergence of financial grooming, which is really named pig butchering. And that's the original name that the scammers gave this uh, type of threat, which is luring victims into cryptocurrency investments. And these are not real cryptocurrency investments. These are fake ones, stealing their money and really squeezing each and every penny that they have out of their pocket. And then there's a new class of cryptocurrency scams that is disguising itself as training and all these new training groups that are emerging and luring people into investment, not by building a relationship with a single person who kind of convinces them to invest, but actually posing as uh, uh, this guru who convinces people to take signals and then invest in other people in this training group are showing profits, convincing the victims to invest. So all that is happening. And Aaron, you have been working with different agencies to understand, first of all, the problem, what's going on, and you shared what you've seen. Alona, tell us a little bit from your perspective, what are you seeing in terms of the size of the problem, the types of victims in, in, in New York, in Manhattan? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I was a fan, uh, you know, from the beginning when I saw that you led off the podcast with having Aaron West and Kathy Stokes as some of your first guests, because they're both, you know, very victim centric. So I knew that this was going to be my 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 kind of podcast. Um, and so Aaron and I always marvel when we get together and talk because we always wind up saying we're seeing the exact same thing. We we always call it like the East Coast West Coast. So everything that you know Aaron has very been publicly describing about the rise of pig butchering um, scams and and the victims and the financial and emotional devastation we are seeing all of that on the east coast as well and in that 6 month period from when you know you first launched the podcast it has not stopped it has just um, increased and we are are keeping our heads above water um, the best that we can to try to respond to our victims in a timely manner, whether that's actually being able to recover stolen funds for them or simply be able to give them some type of closure and, and information uh, about what actually happened and, and what actually happened to, you know, to their money. Um, so they're not just left with being told there's nothing we can do. They're being told we did everything we could, but you know some things are just out of our hands and out of our control. Right, and so Erin, when we talked last, you you shared I think it was the 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 first days or the initial days of okay, we have a process, we know what to do now, so let's spread the word. So can you recap what happened since then? I know you started educating other agencies and other geos in the U.S. Uh, about first of all, about the crypto scams, but also about the tools and processes and and legal actions that could be taken to seize the money. What happened since then? I think it was really exciting to see that there were pockets of people all over the United States doing this type of work too. So Manhattan does a great job at this. Queens does a great job at this. Um, There are, I have colleagues in Connecticut who do fabulous work. And 
Um, but what was happening, what I was noticing is that we weren't talking to each other. And so that I built this thing called the Crypto Coalition. And we started in September of last year with about 85 people on a listserv. And then we the listserv has grown and uh, we're about to have our thousandth member of local, wow. state, federal and international law enforcement doing this type of work. And it's really built a fabulous community where we can share experiences because React had a great start at this, but we weren't the only ones doing it. There were tons of, not tons, but there were others who were doing great work too. And we were all able to benefit from each other. And I think we've built great relationships where oftentimes I feel very alone in my office because nobody else is doing this work. But in this group, I found all my peers that are doing this work and facing the same issues. So I think together we've, um, you know, we've educated each other. And as part of the crypto coalition, I have a webinar every three weeks and I have guests on there who educate us about, you know, people from Binance that talk about how to work with Binance, people from Coinbase that show us how to read their records. Um, other other prosecutors and investigators nationwide who show us how the work they're doing. So it's been, I think, a really helpful community that's built on each other. That's amazing. And I, I think one one thing that you mentioned when we talked uh, last week in preparation for this session was that there are still kind of lone rangers uh, out there who are the single person in their in their community, their, if it's law enforcement or legal teams. And first of all, I, I guess the question is, how, how do they learn? How does the information get to them? What are the resources that they have? And what would you recommend to them to create that broader circle and broader support around them so they're not alone? Um, I definitely recommend joining the coalition, and that's easy to do. You just email me, and um, I'm sure you'll put my e my email in the show notes, but I'm also on LinkedIn, and I use that as a way to communicate with people. But um, I think there are a lot of opportunities out there for people who do feel like the Lone Ranger, and um, one of the best ones is Secret Service operates the National Computer Forensics Institute, um, where they have, te they have a one-week class on digital currency. And then when when investigators go there, that's completely covered by the Secret Service. It's at no cost to their agency. And they come home with not only a great education, but also um, a tool. TRM sponsors them for a year to use their tool. So there are opportunities out there to get free education and to learn. And then the community supports you beyond that. That's really great. And I think, and definitely we'll put all the information in the show notes um, and of course, reaching out to you and, and, and learning more about how to get resources. So one of the things that we talked about is the, and, and curious to see if that has changed over time, the targets for these types of scams and for cryptocurrency investments, because crypto is kind of more advanced. So uh, advanced in terms of technology, in terms of concepts, I think if we look at the population, the elderly, they're used to cash and credit card over time and and kind of cryptocurrency is the next step there. Uh, how susceptible are they in really taking part in these scams and technically getting their money into cryptocurrency exchanges? Is it just elderly or do you see other populations targeted? So maybe, Alona, we can start with you and tell us what you're seeing from your perspective. Yeah, I... 
a, a large number of the victims that I've spoken to in New York have been members of our older population. Um, and, and I know that there's a wide age group that gets hit by these. Um, I think when our older population gets hit, they tend to get hit very hard because they will be more likely to have a, a retirement account and, and savings than someone you know who is in their early 20s. So I've, I've noticed that when I've spoken to that segment of the population, there's a particular level of, of devastation and a sense that like they they won't have the time necessarily to make that money back. They're not in the position to return to the workforce, you know, and recoup. I was very uh, delighted, though. Uh, the, the other month I did a presentation at a senior center in New York. And when I kind of pulled the room about who had gotten like a solicitation of this kind on a phone or through WhatsApp, everybody raised their hand. But every single person in that room also knew that it was a scam and shut them down. And like, I, ma I made everyone in the room like applaud for themselves. And they had all, there was like an email through a bank or a warning in a store or their, or their kid talking to them and saying, you know, don't trust this. Somehow it had seeped into their lives to be on the alert for these type of scams. So I was really, really like delighted to hear that the messaging is coming through, but it does sometimes feel like, you know, for every person who is getting the message, there's, you know, 10 other victims out there that we, we haven't reached yet. So yes, so the, the older and senior population in New York has, has, has been a large part of, of the work that we're doing. And what are you seeing in Santa Clara County, Erin, from a population age perspective? I definitely, what we're seeing is sort of running the gamut between um, all age groups. One of our first victims was in his 30s. We see a lot of people in their 50s, but we definitely do see our senior population as well. So yeah, I would say it runs the gamut. And I think what, what's important for these victims to hear is that the, it is a very sophisticated group of people that fall victim to these scams and that they they should give themselves some grace and some some understanding that they are they are part of a highly manipulative um, well-plotted fraud that really bright people fall into and that um, they're not alone. There, there are people, there are neighbors that have fallen for this too. And so I think that there's such a stigma about reporting and people feeling really badly about themselves um, that I, I wish we could lift that a bit because I know it would benefit everybody to have more reports so that we could understand how massive this problem is. And one of the things that uh, we also talked about is is help. And one is is the alleviating the shame, but another thing is kind of noticing, uh, having family members notice behaviors that are a little different. And people, it's kind of uh, it's sad to say, but it's kind of like when someone is having an affair, they suddenly act differently. They hide their phone. Um, Alona, you had a story about someone who fell for a scam, and in hindsight, their family realized that there were behaviors. Yeah, this, this was a, a, a close uh, friend who actually reached out to me because he knew I was in this line of work, and he, um, they had unfortunately realized um, that one of his parents had, you know, been manipulated um, into sending a large, large amount of money abroad. And I said, have you ever heard of the expression pig butchering? And he said, what's that? And 
I basically like kind of explained, you know, the months long like grooming process and the escalation of, you know, deposits and usually how things kind of reach this bo boiling point when the when the victim wants to make a withdrawal and they can't make a withdrawal. So then they start, you know, squeezing out just a little bit more, you know, under the guise of, you know, you're paying a taxes or a recovery fee. And my friend was like, you just described my parents' behavior over the course of like six months, like their their kind of addiction to the the messaging app on the cell phone, running out to the drugstore to buy, you know, just one more gift card, you know, going to the bank. And uh, it, it, it's kind of crazy how the, the pattern is repeated. And that's like, you know, that Aaron said, it's like, it's this sophisticated, you know, method. It's, it's tried and true. It preys on like psychological triggers of, you know, of, of hope, <laughs> of, of financial dreams, you know, for your future. Um, and I think if, if my friend had been aware of that, he may have spotted, he, you know, he may have been cued into to what was going on with his father, but he, he certainly is now. And, and he's certainly, you know, speaking to his friends and family about what happened. Yeah, that's, that's super important for us as family members, as people who are you know, following this and, and knowledgeable to deliver that message as well. Uh, one is, yes, it can happen to anyone. And two is take care of your community. Like we volunteer to do many things to help, you know, with, with uh, food pantries and, and other things. This is part of that social care to our community. And speaking of that, um, Aaron, so one thing that has emerged over the last few months is Operation Shamrock. Uh, so I would love for you to share that with us. Tell us why, what, the how of, and, and how people can join, of course, as well. Sure. I, um, I became more and more frustrated on behalf of victims because, um, like Alona said, like it has not slowed down at all. And it just, it's, it's more, uh, the number of victims continue to rise. And so I, I felt like I needed at least for, I needed to come up with a plan of, of ideas of ways to fight this beast that didn't involve arresting kingpins because I didn't think that was within my, my capability. But what I could do is, um, I could educate, I could seize, I could disrupt. Those were the things that I thought were in my skill set and that I had the ability to do. So I just I started with the education piece of just talking about it all the time, um, talking on LinkedIn, talking, um, you know, accepting any opportunity to really talk about what this what this problem is. And for education, I see that that piece of the Operation Shamrock as. Um, you know, it, not only educating law enforcement, educating um, potential victims, and then educating actual victims and their families that this is a scam. Because uh, you know, we were talking about a lot of times they, the victims don't realize they're in a scam, despite the pleas of their children to, that, to tell them that they are. Um, and then the second leaf was seize, because that was something that my office had some good fortune with. We were able to get to some of the victims' funds and recover them. And um, and that really struck a chord with me because I felt as though it was an opportunity to have, like Alona said, victims feel heard and, and have them get some sort of closure to what they had experienced, 
even if they weren't able to get money back, they felt like we had exhausted our, our, what we could do. And then the last piece is disrupt. I think that we have um, some fantastic opportunities in a lot of really creative ways to disrupt this, this massive beast on the other side of the ocean that is continuing to spread. And those are, you know, working with social media to disrupt the on-ramps, working with the social media that's allowing these predators to be on their sites and looking at how we can disrupt um, their their access to domains, working with GoDaddy and Namecheap and, and other domain providers to see how we can quickly limit the ability of them to, to own all these domains. So there's just a lot of, as well as just their general infrastructure. I know that there's a, there's, Somebody turned off the power to one of the sites in in Myanmar um, over the last week, and that's that's a great disruption too. So I think what's what I do want to say about Operation Shamrock is like it's available to everyone. It's like whatever you want to do that you find disruptive or providing education or providing a means of seizure, like please do it and call it Operation Shamrock. We are all in this together. This is a massive, massive deal. And this isn't just my thing. This is all of our things. So that to right. me is what Operation Shamrock is about. So tell me a little bit from a orchestration perspective, operationally, because um, I, I definitely think, you know, these three pillars are, are they work really well together and they, they complement each other. How is it run? Who is participating today? How can people get in touch and, and contribute if they are in the industry and have the ability to, to contribute? I'm so glad you asked. So I had a, I had a great idea, right? And then, um, and then running a great idea is also another project in itself of figuring out how to run this. And so um, I've started to work with some great partners who are helping me get it organized, who have better access to banking industry, who might be able to assist with that. And um, I'm organizing some roundtables to bring people together into the same room to figure out who wants to take responsibility for certain buckets of this. And I think that's how that's how it will end up playing out is that We'll look for leadership in each of these roles and um, and give everyone an opportunity to be part of it. So um, so yeah, if you if you do feel like you have a, you have time and energy and willingness to be part of that, I would love to hear from you, and I would love to put you to work. That's amazing, and we'll add resources in the show notes for that as well. Lots of resources today. Great. Um, and Alona, I think you have a great story uh, about the disrupt pillar that you can share with us today, just hot off the press, literally. Yeah. Um, so first of all, and just to piggyback on what Erin said, like Erin and I are both, you know, career local and state prosecutors, which means we're like, we're very scrappy. <laughs> you know, we're very resourceful. We're used to being told, no, that's not in your jurisdiction. No, you can't do this. No, you know, we don't have a federal budget for that. You don't have like that resource. But but that just means that we're like 10 times more like resourceful than anyone else. And we're constantly like networking and connecting with people and finding out like, how can we help them? How, how can you help us? What can we do from our, you know, little stronghold in our in our state to actually make a difference? So I I I love local and state, you know, prosecutors and law enforcement because I think we really know how to get like a lot done with very little. Um, so 
in that model of, um, of disruption, <laughs> one of the, the shamrock pillars, um, there's been a lot of talk about um, fraudulent uh, cryptocurrency asset recovery services. And it's sometimes called a, a double victimization scan. So a lot of victims who may have, you know, fallen prey to, to one of these pig butchering scams may not think that they can get help from their local law enforcement or their local law enforcement just isn't equipped to help them. So they turn to, you know, just Googling or, or looking online and there are sites, entities and companies saying, we'll provide the service, pay us up front and kind of prey on and cultivate this hope in the victims that, oh, we can get, you know, your money or some of your money back, you know, but obviously asking for payment in, in return. The, the people controlling these sites, there are certain things that may be outside the control or scope of, of local law enforcement. But in this particular case, we had a, a press release today that um, pursuant to search warrant, the, um, the, the website for one of those entities known as Coin Dispute Network was effectively seized uh, by the Manhattan DA's office and taken offline. So if you go to that website now, Coin Dispute Network, you'll see like a splash page from the Manhattan DA's office, which we hope will get you know, the word out to, to victims or people who thought they were legitimate customers of that website. So that was a really that was us embracing the disrupt model. What can we do to get the word out as quickly as possible to impact as many victims as possible, you know, to cut off the flow of of people sending more money into this entity which the investigation is ongoing but we believe that they were, you know, offering a, a fraudulent recovery service. And it was, it was just kind of a way to to get creative with what law enforcement can do. In these types of cases, traditional law enforcement, you know, thinks a case concludes with, you know, with an arrest and you're taken to court and you're, you know, you before a judge and you litigate it. And we can't always do that when things are, you know, online or virtual or, or all in crypto, but I really, really encourage people to get creative about what they can do and, and what may be in their control through DNS services or, or internet registrars. There's kind of a, a framework, a structure supporting a lot of these fraudulent entities and we can you know, chip away and, and dismantle it a little. So I just have to give props to my investigative team who led that, uh, the lead ADA, uh, Virginia Wen. Um, our amazing cryptocurrency analyst, Kelly Kenny, and investigators, Greg Dunleavy and Ethan Zubkoff. We had an amazing team that just worked as fast as possible because they knew every day that victims' money was at stake. So that's amazing. And I always say that recovery scammers are the scum of the earth because not only has someone gone through a scam, lost a lot of money, potentially all their money as often the case with pig butchering scams, it's now trying to take even more money because these services cost money. And I guess my question is, are there any legitimate recovery services out there or is it just law enforcement? The legitimate recovery services are going to be upfront with you and they're going to let you know that to ultimately recover something, you're going to have to go to law enforcement. So for me, a legitimate service would say, would maybe take you on as a client and work with you and maybe more have time, you know, time to talk to you, but say immediately report this, you know, to law enforcement or IC3 as well. Um, they're going to be upfront about their capabilities and their restrictions. And when it comes to seizing cryptocurrency, I think there is a legal aspect involved there. So it will have to be 
the authorities, right? Yes. The, to my knowledge, the exchanges that, that work with us to, to return seized crypto are only going to be responsive to a, a search warrant or order that's issued by law enforcement. I'm not aware of any of those exchanges returning money based on a, a private corporation at all. They, they wouldn't do that. So anybody who's leading you in that direction is, is, is misleading you. Wow. Well, amazing, amazing news. And I hope uh, we'll see more of these success stories coming out. And as you said, being resourceful and being creative. Um, and between that and Operation Shamrock, I one question that comes to my mind is kind of, wait, that's awesome, Erin, that you've t- taken charge and you're pushing this and you're inviting everyone. But I'm also kind of in the back of my mind, this question com- comes up. Who's in charge? Who's supposed to be in charge of our safety and security? Who's the person who has the or- organization that has that authority on a federal level to say, or even on a state level, to say, this is a big problem. The level of crime is almost surpassing physical crime. And, you know, as a taxpayer who's paying both federal and local taxes, I want to ask, like, who should be in charge? What agency or organization or institute is supposed to be taking care of me? And where are they? I think that's a valid question. I think that you have a lot of victims who are going to be listening to this, who feel the same way. And um, this particular crime of pig butchering doesn't fall easily into any bucket. And it has resistance in a number of ways. Number one, it's, it's physically a great distance from us. And so we don't have the ability to go over there and knock on doors and get evidence. Um, And so that's a tricky piece of it. Secondly, it involves um, it involves international governments and international lack of governments and um, an organized crime. And so that falls that's that's not a local issue. That's a that's a federal issue, and and fed, federal issue needs to put pressure on there. Um, I mean, quite honestly, I I I think that. This is an issue that needs to rise to the top of of federal government in terms of the major problem that it is. I saw a um, article from Interpol this morning that talked about how entrenched this is and how it's growing. And we've really only seen the Southeast Asia piece of it. But I know that it is taking hold in Africa and Middle East. And I, I think that it can no longer be overlooked by the by the highest levels of our government. It's a major, major problem that's way over my head, but but it's way over Alona's head, but we're not going to look away because these are our victims who are calling us and are crying and are threatening suicide. So we're a piece of it and we, we're not going away because we, we care about our people. So we're doing the best in, in the way Alona says it, in the scrappiest way we know how, and we're going to keep doing it. But yeah, it's a, I think it's a major international crisis. And just think about the millions of dollars that were hard-earned hard earned money by U.S. citizens that are leaving the U.S. and how that will impact our systems, our welfare, social security. Generations. For generations, for sure. Yeah, I think everybody just like understood the magnitude of, of like 
the entirety of the contents of retirement accounts and bank accounts that are just like flowing out of U.S. citizens, like their their minds would just be blown. Like I know, I know, Aaron sometimes feels that way. You just want to shout and be like, "This is, you know, this is crazy. Uh, what's going on?" Law enforcement traditionally, we don't always agencies we don't always play together that well or or, or share that well historically, but. I think with with tackling these scams and and crypto stuff, I've seen a real collaboration and unity that I haven't seen before when I've worked, you know, in street crimes and on other areas. Because I think there's a sense of like we're all in this together, <laughs> and our victims are spread out like across the country. And you know, if we help each other, we're you know we're helping we're kind of helping everyone. Um, so that is is something that is very heartening and, and encouraging to me when I sometimes feel like it's it's overwhelming. How are we going to tackle this? I, I do feel like I'm I'm part of a a crypto law enforcement community. That's amazing. That's amazing to hear. And I think what you essentially did is you divided into okay, yes, this is a burger problem. It's not on me to solve this problem, but I can do a lot of things and really taking that charge of what is in my control and what can I do and how can I, you know, and, and Aaron, the, 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 the call out to the community to do more and, and be part of the solution, I think is amazing. And I really do hope, genuinely hope that this will get to regulators and to office and to uh, federal level. One of the things that you mentioned in our earlier conversations was the challenges that you had in terms of the legal system and what is in there to support you from a regulatory or, or, or from, a, you know, the law and, and that perspective on the state level. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts there and what could change easily to help and support you to execute quicker? I think we're both like, oh gosh, so many things. It's so, it's so tricky. I think what, I think what's happening for me and then I'll, I'll happily defer to Alona is that, we are trying to fit new crimes into old laws. And so they're not set up for that. And so it's the, it's the absolute need to be innovative and, 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 and not, there are a million reasons why what we're doing doesn't fit the, the old laws, but we have to figure out ways to work within our system to get assistance to our victims. And so um, so I feel like we're always trying to sort of finagle um, and stay within the the rule of law, but still, but still get our victims back what they deserve. I think one of the major problems we face is that we're not going to be able to file a criminal complaint in a lot of these cases, but we still want to take legal action against against the assets that we're seizing. We want to, to be able to have a judge make decisions about those assets, knowing that there won't be um, a criminal case brought in in Santa Clara County. And I think that's a tricky place to be. Um, yeah, I think you put it great, Erin, the, the new new crimes and, and, and old law that was you know drafted before you know cryptocurrency was even conceived. Um, I think something that would be really helpful for for local law enforcement and prosecutors is um is having you know uh some type of definition of of a cryptocurrency transaction <laughs> or a digital asset which i know is still you know being litigated like <laughs> as we speak but something that 
can be, you know, put into our laws so that we won't have to worry about, you know, litigating that definition and whether uh, the crime we're investigating is covered by the law, you know, down the line, um, like, you know, knowing that that we're supported by the statute before we wade into a case, you know, if we get to that point. Um, so I know, Aaron, like you testified about it. I know they, they have pending legislation in Connecticut. Um, I, I'd uh, like to push New York along <laughs> that course as well. And it has to be for each, on the state level for each and every state, right? Is there any collaboration as part of the crypto coalition to say, you know, here are the things that we could potentially push to expedite the changes? Honestly, like I... I feel like there are so many great ideas like, yeah, there should be a legislation group in the crypto coalition, 100 mm-hmm. percent. And um, and it's it's all bandwidth issues. I think we are uh, I can speak for myself. I'm stretched so thin trying to I have so many ideas and so um, and only so many hours in a day. And so, um, yeah, I I I would love to see someone take up the legislation piece of this because I think it's super valid and really important. Yeah. And speaking of that, one of the things that really struck me as interesting and also maybe need to be revisited is how do how do law enforcement and 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 um, your agencies also uh, the legal system define success? Right. It's traditionally been been finding a criminal, prosecuting a criminal and putting them away. That's not the case in these crimes and and seeking justice for victims as much as we can. Um, how are things there, and what? How does that impact your ability to actually execute and and get budget? Right. So, because I'm sure both of you are asked, okay, how many how many people did you put away behind bars? Not too many. So, tell tell me a little bit about that. Well, I considering that just a number of years ago a victim could have called up, you know, the police department here and reported like some type of pig butchering or related scheme. And they would have been told, oh, that's civil or there's nothing we can do or, oh, no, that's crypto. The feds do that. And that would be the end of the case. Considering that now, if they were to reach out to my office, they would get a call back or a meeting from a trained investigator and a cryptocurrency analyst. And we would be immediately, you know, triaging the flow of funds to see what we recovered. That that's just like an internal win that we've that we've come so far, um, you know, so quickly. Like it was only a couple of years ago that I was at like my first crypto conference, like writing, you know, what is Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, down. So um, sometimes I think we're we're very hard on ourselves, but if we we look at at how much progress we've made, you know, that's a win on its own. And then yes, I think um, Aaron and I probably had the job of of educating, you know, our, our executives and our bosses that this is going to be a, a different type of crime and in a different type of approach and a different type of uh, outcome, outcome. And that, uh, yeah, and it, it's not going to look the way like a, a, a traditional criminal enforcement um, matter would work. That was a learning curve, you know, for me too, because I just kept thinking, but where's the person who did this? And, and we really had to work on shifting our mind frame and, and realizing we might never find that out or the person themselves, you know, may be a victim, um, you know, of human trafficking. So it, it's, it's been a process. And I think, I think we're, 
we're both grateful for the leadership that's allowing us to do this. We understand that we are we are forging a new path here, and it's not a path that's easily uh, quantifiable. And and I'm grateful for my DA who understands that this is a longer road. And um, Jeff Rosen has been super supportive of allowing us the time and the um, and and the time away from traditional work to talk about it and to educate about it and and um, and I'm just really grateful for that opportunity because because right we're we're we haven't put anyone in jail this year from React but what we have done is we've made a lot of victims feel really heard and really uh, given them good feelings about the community that they live in and that they are heard. Do you think that there are areas or are agencies where there are barriers because of the KPIs, because the the metrics are around putting people away versus helping victims? And how do we facilitate that change? And obviously you guys have done that. And I love how you um, are grateful for, for the opportunity. And I, I'm wondering how, how can we help others get to that mindset? That's a tricky one. So, so I, I went to the international chiefs of police meeting because I thought, okay, well, that's an opportunity to educate, you know, the leaders about how, how this, how, how challenging this, this particular crime is. And I think it's a difficult road. I think that, um, you know, leadership at this point has been in that career for 20 years and really sees, um, sees, sees violent crime and, um, you know, physical protection of, of its citizens as, as the top, as the most important piece. And so it's really difficult to try and educate about people losing their money on, um, on a cryptocurrency scheme as being the national crisis that it is. And so it's, I, I think it's an uphill battle, but I think Alona and I keep taking a step up every day and, and hopefully we're getting closer to where we want to be. So um, I don't know how we get there. I know we just keep walking. I would reinforce my my advocacy for for being creative in in the way that you think about how you approach your cases. And if you know you're in the position where you're going to have to to meet with your your chiefs or your bosses and and convince them of something, take the time to invest in educating uh, yourself first so that you can be well-versed and fluent um, when you go into those those conversations. I've spent uh, a lot of my time at work this year, you know, just trying to educate myself, you know, watch webinars, listen to other people talk, you know, attend conferences so that I was, you know, even capable of, of having a dialogue about why why this work is important. That's a really good point. And I think that there's a lot of resources out there. Eilat, when you started this podcast, there weren't, you know, there weren't that many podcasts like this out there. And look at how many episodes you've put out of really quality material that people could listen to. And there are others like you doing the same type of work. And I, um, I just think that there are good resources out there and a, and a strong community of people that want to welcome you and assist. Thank you. So to my final question, then, uh, you are both very creative, out-of-the-box thinkers. And what I wanted to ask you is, in a realistic yet optimistic and ambitious goal setting here, 
What do you want to see happen over the next six months? Are you going to have us back in six months and we're going to revisit this? You're going to play this clip for us? <laughs> uh, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Oh, I have lots of goals. I, I, I would I would love to see um, I would love to see a a capable uh, investigator in every state that could triage a case um, and and have a have a intelligent conversation with a victim. And I would like to have um, that investigator in each state have access to a, a commercially available tool that will help them with their work. Those are two easy ones. Easy yet. Yeah, not so easy. So I really hope that will be the case. Um, and, and you are, you guys are doing everything that's required to, to get you there and, and to make that happen. Alona, any thoughts to add? I really agree with what Erin <laughs> just, I know she had a vision of, of a map and like having, a, you know, the name of, because a person in each state, but I also hope for those people, because I've had many conversations when I've been when I've reached out about finding, you know, a victim that's not in New York State, and I've made a connection, and I've started off the conversation by, you know, I was looking for the the cryptocurrency unit, and the person on the other end is like, "It's me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm it." Like, and I know they oftentimes, you know, feel alone, as, as we talked about at, at, at the beginning. Um, so I hope for them uh, that, um, you know, they get at least a partner. <laughs> And they're, they're not a lone ranger anymore. Yeah. 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 And I, I would add to that, uh, taking that to the federal level that that or, or the state level that funds are shifted even more to support victims of these crimes and to investigate because I, I just had a conversation. It's much easier to commit these virtual crimes and it's safer for the cyber criminals. It could be executed out of state, but not in all cases. There are also many local such scams. So the ability for us to investigate, to know how to deal with what's coming. We didn't talk about deep fakes and generative AI and how that's used. I just want to add one other hope. You know, getting the, the tools, the cost of the tools can be very prohibitive. Um, and I would love, there are so many grant opportunities like for law enforcement out there. And I would love to see uh, more grant opportunities specifically, maybe from the federal government, maybe, uh, you know, from elsewhere so that local law enforcement can get the funding that they need um, to, to get these tools to, to empower them. That's a good one. And it's so important to have the tools because that's how you can actually trace the money and help victims potentially recover those funds. Great. Well, I wanted to thank both of you for joining me today and for sharing your thoughts. I want to thank you for all your work and your ambition. And I love what you said, Erin, about just it's an uphill battle. Alona and I are taking one step up a day and we're going to continue. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we're, we're at it. And you're, you're climbing the Everest here. And I applaud you for that. Thank you so much. And thanks for sharing your hopes and your, your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk again in six months. I better get working on my states. <laughs>
and also what to do next to verify. In the next episode, we will talk about social media and the role that social media plays within the scam life cycle. Until the next time.